T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by outgoing Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Aaron, and thank you very much for inviting me. Well, you are calling it a career after 47 years as a prosecutor in Connecticut. Why did you decide to retire now as of November 1? Well, I'm still a, I'm still a little shocked when I just heard the word outgoing, uh, Chief State's Attorney. Why I've been doing this for 47 years. There are younger people around. I'm starting to, to, to have hard, you know, the pace is busy. It's a full-time job. It's very, very, very full, as a matter of fact. And there's a lot to do, and it's time to let somebody younger take over. Now, you started as a prosecutor in Middletown, correct? Middletown, yes. What are you most proud of in terms of your accomplishments during your career? I'm not sure. It's Well, uh, the accomplishments are working together, being able to work together, and, and, and helping people work together and in many, many different ways over many years. And being able to work with, with so many terrific, dedicated, hardworking people. Everywhere, you know, police, other prosecutors, law enforcement officers, defense attorneys, jurors who, who, who have been wonderful over the years, witnesses and victims. I've been, I don't know what's being proud of it, but it's just been humbling and rewarding and, and uh, uh, sometimes very sad and hurtful and for people. But to work over the years, that work, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of getting through it. Connecticut has a rather unique system in terms of the way prosecutors are selected. They're, they're, they're not elected, as in other states. And also, in other states, the attorney general is the top law enforcement official. And here, it's the chief state's attorney. This is a history that goes back to 1704. The judges used to appoint prosecutors. They did when I started, and the judges appointed, appointed us all until 1984 when the constitutional amendment uh, passed and, and went into effect, creating the chief state's attorney and creating the division, of, the commission, the criminal justice commission. I think the reason for that was repeated many times by Supreme Court opinions and by by legal scholars in the state and by, by lawyers that it was very important to, to, to insulate prosecutors from the give and take, and, and really what one justice, Justice Maltby, who is the longest-serving chief justice in Connecticut, described as the vagaries of public opinion. And you can see over the years how public opinion shifts dramatically uh, from one extreme to the other, usually in response to, to very emotional and, and understandably emotional cases or events. It seems in jurisdictions where prosecutors are elected, you see them in the media more often than you see them here in Connecticut. Does that help in delivering equitable justice, would you say, not having to to show off to the press? 
I, I wouldn't say it helps in delivering equitable justice. What I would say it helps in, and this is something that's been, that's maybe a little bit of the, I wouldn't call it even a downside. By doing that, maybe prosecutors or district attorneys explain themselves better, explain what they're doing. We tend to do our work in the courtroom. We tend to do our work working with police officers, uh, working with victims, talking to victims, meeting with them. And we tend to do the work more behind the scenes, except for what we do in the courtroom is obviously very, very public. used to be more so when the media was in court every day and covered the courts. It's not so now. But I still think it's, it's far more important if we're going to follow the law, apply the law properly, and seek justice, which is really a, a, a balancing uh, between varied interests. I think the system we have in Connecticut is much better than the system in other states. And I know that. I've been to the National District Attorneys Association conventions. I know many uh, district attorneys around the country. I, I, I understand them. They think it's better that way. I don't. What sort of initiatives that began during your tenure do you hope to see continued when you are retired? As I, I want to say, the we've done a lot of good initiatives since I, initiative since even before I became uh, chief state's attorney. When I was state's attorney, we began working on things like video recording interrogations. Uh, I want to see, and we've moved now to video recording witness statements. Sometimes, frequently, the police have done that. And we had to overcome a long history of, of, of uh, thinking that it was better not to. Uh, slowly we evolved. I had a, uh, a murder case in, in where I was involved with the police in a murder investigation uh, in, in, in Ledyard, outside the Foxwoods Casino, that the police video recorded interrogations of witnesses. And when we did it, we thought it was terrific as an investigative tool and also being able to, to document what exactly was said, what questions were asked, and we thought it was terrific. Uh, I would like to see continuing progress among that. We've made progress in eyewitness identification reforms. This is working together, sometimes prodded by the legislature, sometimes prodded by public opinion. And now what I'd like to see work at that we've started really is a, a really a, a function, a re not a rethinking even. It goes back to what the core prosecutor function always has been in Connecticut, and that's really functioning, fo focusing on our charging function. It's the prosecutor who decides whether or not somebody should be charged with a crime. The police, for many reasons, very important reasons, may need to make an arrest in a situation. If there's probable cause, if there's events, if there's a need to protect the public, uh, and they have probable cause, they need to make an arrest. That doesn't mean that every one of those people needs to be prosecuted. And that is something I think we have gotten away from uh, since I began. For a variety of reasons, we've gotten away, and I began to, glad to explain it more. It's, a, it's something we have to think in depth about. We've gotten away from the very initial focus on whether or not a person who is arrested should be charged with the crime and whether or not it's in the public interest to do so. Because right now, most often, when someone's arrested, it's the, the police lodging the charges, correct? Well, it is, practically, although the law doesn't provide for that. The law is that the court does not have jurisdiction until the pro prosecutor files the charges. But practically, back when the, the local town courts and the municipal courts and the trial justice courts uh, were abolished back in 1969, and the first 
the circuit court was created, which is a statewide criminal court, trial court for low-level cases, the re- police reports went from the police right to the clerk's office of the court. The docket was created, was all made public, and the charges that the clerk put on were the charges the police thought were appropriate. And they usually were the appropriate charges. And then the process flowed. And the prosecutors, who then were part, part of the judicial branch, didn't really decide, should I prosecute this person? Should I charge this person with a crime? What they decided is, should I uncharge the person? Should I nolly the case? If you've been in court, you know what that term means. Should I nolly the case? Should I nolly this case is a very different question than should I charge. And I think we need, and we've been trying over the past year, well, for a while, and through some grant money, we got some money to do pilot uh, uh, programs in several different GA courthouses uh, to focus on this with chronic low-level offenders. Not just chronic low-level offenders, but low-level offenders. How important a tool is the, the plea bargain in the job you do? The plea bargain is critically important because the volume is so high. If we had to try every case, the dockets would be backed up forever, and we couldn't possibly do it. Now, the question is, what's the plea bargain, what kind of plea bargaining, and what does that all mean? Uh, and, and how could that be infected and improved by more focus on the initial charging decision? And I think that's why, if you focus more on the initial charging decision so that we can make informed charging decisions up front, that will dramatically change an awful lot of what goes on throughout from the beginning to the end of the system. Specifically, what needs to be put into place so you can make a more informed charging decision? Well, we've put a lot of that in place, and here's the best example of it. With regard to low-level offenders, many of them are chronic low-level offenders. The police are called to make an arrest, somebody who's loitering in a store and driving away customers, somebody who's, who's making it uh, impinging greatly on the lives of the people who live, work, and go to school and visit neighborhoods whether it's a park or a schoolyard or, or, or a neighborhood uh, where they're engaging in activity, which, which really impacts the people's quality of life in that neighborhood. The police are called. They tell the person, stop doing this. You can't. The person repeats it. And finally, the police legitimately can and do make an arrest. They have probable cause to make an arrest. Now, does that mean everybody needs to be prosecuted for that? We can prove the case. We look at it and we can prove the case. But many of these people are homeless, drug addicted, mental health problems, a variety of of social problems. Now, we're not social workers. Prosecutors aren't. But we can, any of us who've been around a little while, can read a police report and say, this person's got a problem. What we've done in these pilot areas is through, because grant money that the Singer Foundation provided us, we were able to hire social workers in the office who were usually supplied by local providers who were familiar and knew the local resources in the area, knew which ones were good for certain types of people. A prosecutor could give a file to that social worker, we call them case coordinators, and say, is there anything that can help this person? Because if we focus on the underlying problem, that will reduce the criminal behavior. And that's what the public needs to be protected from. Now, if we go ahead and charge that person, most people in Connecticut aren't being held in, in lieu of bail for low offenses anymore. They're being released on a written promise to appear generally. And the case is being continued and continued again and again. 
First, they have to get a public defender, which the taxpayers pay for. Then the case has to be continued. Then maybe again so the public defender can talk to the defendant. Then again so the public defender can talk to the prosecutor. Then again so the prosecutor and the public defender can talk to the judge and make a recommendation about an outcome. That costs money. That costs time. But also it has a very, very negative impact on the defendant who has to appear in court multiple times, often sit in court all morning, sometimes without even talking to his or her lawyer, and it has to come back on another day. Some of these people have problems just scheduling their time and don't know what day it is or don't get back to court and they miss a court appearance. Then they get rearrested. Then maybe a bond gets put on them. Or because their underlying problem hasn't been addressed, they get arrested again because the same conduct occurs. And ultimately, these cases go through the many diversionary programs we have. Uh, They can go through 14 of them before getting a conviction, and they don't get the help they need. The idea of this is up front before we ever get them into the system, before we have to continue the case. We can refer them and get them to a program that can help them. Sometimes it, it means taking the person to a ride so they can get there on the same day. Because if you tell them to come back in two weeks and, and tell us how you did, either they won't come back or, or they won't report how they did or whether they went or they couldn't go for a program. But with the case coordinators, we've been able to hook them up with programs, get them there on the same day, and get some feedback that they got there, for instance, number one, that they were participating in their treatment and that they were getting help. And this has, just in the data, because of the Singer Foundation, we, we, could, we could collect data and compare it. In the, G, in the areas where we were doing this, we were dispo- moving cases, getting people to help and then not charging them, in one or in average of one court appearance, sometimes before court appearance. In the areas where we were not doing that, they were making six, eight, or nine court appearances before they'd get they'd go through a program and then we'd never get any feedback as to how they did in that program until they got arrested again. I think that's a dramatic effect and it's only a start. It's only a first step. And this is why I say it's so important to focus on the charging function of the prosecutor. Now, if we can do that, the, the legislature, at least for the past eight, nine years has been reluctant to, to give us any resources. Uh, We've gradually lost resources, a considerable amount of resources. And the legislature and the public has always perceived us as putting a, all we want to do is put people in prison. We have always not prosecuted pretty close to 40% of the cases that come into court, either through letting them go through diversionary programs or nulling them. That's a lot of cases in the end, but it's extremely expensive to do it that way. You're listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane, who has announced his retirement. He is calling it a career as of November 1st. After you announced your planned departure, the ACLU of Connecticut, which has been very vocal on criminal justice reform, issued a statement saying, in part, smart justice leaders pushed Kevin Kane into softening some of his positions on justice reform. And we hope and expect the next chief state's attorney will play a much more active role in the fight to end mass incarceration and racism in the justice system. Not a statement that makes you feel warm and fuzzy uh, on your departure. How would you respond to that? Well, in a way it does, although I wouldn't say they were the ones who pushed. We were making progress. 
I've evolved uh, on my own. I was uh, on, on our own. We have. I've always felt that when we are involved in investigations, we should try to keep that confidential and not public for a whole variety of reasons. A, to protect the investigation, and B, not to, not to harm the reputations of people who we were investigating. Now, this obvious, obviously became very challenging, and legitimately so, in police-involved use of force, especially resulting in death. For many years, we, the state's attorneys have been responsible for investigating those cases, and for many reasons, we, many years we did so. And I'd always felt, and I did many myself when I was state's attorney in New London, that we needed to keep that confidential and we would write a thorough report, and at the end we would make that report public. And the reports all were made public, and so were the police reports and the evidence on which it was based if it was closed out and we didn't make an arrest. And we have them now all available online. And I always felt that that was, that was transparent. Well, in these cases, the, the public, and many of these cases, are upsetting. And the public rightfully wanted to know, have answers immediately, and we needed, to, and I think we gradually become uh, to recognize and accept, I know I have, and I know the other state's attorneys have too, that the public does have a legitimate need to know or an understandable desire to know a lot sooner uh, rather than later uh, with some of the information that we can disclose, and particularly with the demand for video recordings, police body camera recordings or other video recordings of a shooting. I think we can look at those and either interview the witnesses that need to be interviewed in time and then release some of those because they, they, that, that may well not impinge on the investigation, and we're trying to do so. So that's an example of the way we have changed. I think the ACLU, they have positions, they've talked, we've had many meetings. Uh, actually, the meetings go a lot better than their public statements go uh, when we meet with them because I think they've come to court, come to courthouses. They've learned to understand when they see the process and are being uh, watching the process how, how, how the criminal, the court process works at least. I think they've gained a lot of understanding. We've also listened to their concerns. And uh, I think we're going to continue making progress. The ability to collect data, which they're, 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 they've been pushing very hard for, uh, I think is important. We've been unable really to collect data, and that's a long story too. I think the biggest problem I think we've had over the years is people look for simple solutions and, and look, look at the criminal justice system as a whole. The criminal justice system is not a whole of anything. It's, it's, it's different components, different units really working together that ultimately work together in certain ways and certain ways conflict with each other a little bit. But you have to break it down and look at component parts. Uh, it's a complicated answer to a simple question, but the question really is, is not simple. And I don't think focusing on it in the manner uh, that we have is sufficient. We really need to get down and look at different component parts, say, what can we fix here, and how can we fix it without causing greater problems in other areas, and do it. And that's something we can do, and I agree we need to find ways to get, get public participation in that. That's one of the things we've done with, we call it early screening and intervention, which really isn't a new program, it's doing things right. We've just had a meeting with a community in New Haven uh, that's impacted with low-level crimes. Uh, people who live and work in, in the neighborhoods where crimes are being committed. 
and work with the state's attorney's office, a meeting with the state's attorney's office and the neighborhoods and other community leaders. And that was really good to get us engaged with the public, get prosecutors engaged with the public in a way that I think is a lot better than us going out and making speeches, uh, but talking to groups, listening to groups and getting there and, and understanding what their needs are in, in the communities that we serve. You were involved in the prosecution of serial killer Michael Ross, who was the last death row inmate in Connecticut to be put to death. He asked for it. Uh, how do you feel about how that case played out? Well, I wouldn't really say he asked for it until the end, and, and that's kind of a, 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 that's a little more complicated, too. Uh, he certainly didn't at first. We had a, a trial, a contested trial, a contested penalty phase hearing. The penalty, the first penalty phase hearing where the jury, the case was transferred to Bridgeport, uh, the trial and the first penalty phase hearing. That first penalty phase hearing was set aside by the Supreme Court. The penalty phase was retried again, and that's where I, Bob Satie had retired, and I did that. Uh, so I wouldn't say he, he agreed to it. In Until the, the end, very end, you know. In the very yeah. end, I think he he fully realized that... that uh, he wouldn't prevail. Uh, there were a lot of things. How do I feel? I feel that we followed the law in that case. I'm not a fan of the death penalty. I never was. Uh, it was very hard for me to do that. I felt under the case the legislature had voted several times to amend the amend, to 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 have the death penalty. They had enacted a statute, which is the most difficult death penalty statute in the country to apply. It's harder to apply the death penalty in Connecticut than it was in any other state that had the death penalty. Extremely rigorous. That was a case where you looked at it. He, you know, he sexually assaulted and, 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 and he was a serial rapist who sexually assaulted many, many women and murdered some of them. The ones he murdered were the ones that he thought might be able to identify him or cause him to be arrested. He, in New London County, he, 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 he murdered Robin Stavinsky, April Bounet, Leslie Shelley, and Wendy Barabalt, sexually assaulting three of them and murdering a four, the fourth who, who was a witness to, it, to one of the sexual assaults. He had raped and murdered two women up in, in Wyndham County, and he raped and murdered two women in New York and other sexual assaults with victims who were unable to identify him, and he didn't kill them. Now, how it played out in the end, you know, this is a troubling case. It bothers me thinking of those victims and thinking of the families of those victims. But I analyzed it by this. I took an oath. We, we as state's attorneys, took an oath to apply the law. We don't enact laws. The public enacts laws through the legislature. The legislature had thought about that law many times and passed a statute and and... And, and, and chose not to repeal it many times. When I got that, and we had wide discretion in when to seek a death penalty. With regard to this case, I thought, if we don't seek it in this case, then nobody deserves it. And that would mean that I'm refusing to apply the law as the legislature passed it. I thought that was a case to let the jury make a decision. And the argument I made to the jury was there if you follow the law. If you find there's an, uh, uh, this, the, these crimes are cruel, heinous, and depraved, and if you find there is no mitigating factor, and that's your judgment, uh, consider all the evidence, and if that's a judgment you come back with, then 
So be it. He is Chief State's Attorney Kevin Kane. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, and enjoy retirement, sir. Thank you very much. These are deep, super deep questions that we touched on on some uh, important topics. Well, I want while I'm retiring from a job, I don't want to give up this work, this work, and participating because this is really important, and I hope to continue it. I gather we'll be hearing from you in another capacity again. Hope so. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t